Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I hope you're well. I hope that you're still safe and healthy and wearing your mask and distantly socializing. It's always darkest before it goes pitch black, right? <laughs> we are up to book 16 of the Odyssey. In the last book, we saw Telemachus return from his journey and saw Odysseus hanging out with Eumaeus. When book 16 starts, Odysseus is still hanging out at Eumaeus's hut, but now it's morning, so they have breakfast and send the boys off to work. And then Odysseus hears a footfall, and he turns to see Telemachus, who the dogs all know, so they don't bark. Um, and since Odysseus hasn't seen his son in 20 years, he thinks this must be one of Eumaeus's crew. Eumaeus jumps up from the table and runs to the door to embrace Telemachus as though he were his own son. He tells Telemachus how relieved he is that the young man has returned safely from Pylos. Telemachus says that he wanted to see Eumaeus first because he could trust the old man's news. Uh, Eumaeus reassures Telemachus that Penelope has not remarried. During this conversation, Odysseus has risen to make room for Telemachus to sit at the table, but Telemachus tells him to sit back down. Odysseus does, and Eumaeus builds a new seat out of evergreen boughs and fleeces, and then he serves his guests a second breakfast. As they eat, Telemachus asks Eumaeus to introduce his other guest, and Eumaeus does, giving him the story that Odysseus made up back in Book 14. He then tells Telemachus that he is passing this guest on to him. Telemachus protests. How, um, you know, with how things are going at home, how can he offer protection to a guest? He will, however, make sure that the man is provided for, offering new clothes, a sword, sandals, and he'll even send food if Eumaeus will keep him at his hut. Um, but there are just, there are simply too many suitors for one man to stand up to. <laughs> Foreshadowing much. Odysseus finally speaks up. He tells Telemachus that if he were Odysseus' son, or even the man himself, that he would rather die trying to get rid of the suitors than not try at all. Telemachus tries to explain um, and then asks Eumaeus to go to the palace to tell Penelope that he's home safe and sound, but not to let any of the suitors hear. Eumaeus asks if he should take the news to Laertes too, but Telemachus says, no, that's too risky. Penelope can send their old housekeeper to Laertes with the news. So Eumaeus puts on his shoes and heads out. Now, of course, who has been watching all of this? Athena. And once she sees that Eumaeus is gone, she takes the form of a woman and stops by Eumaeus's gate. Odysseus can see her and the dogs who whimper and hide, but, but not Telemachus. Odysseus ambles over to talk to her. She tells him that she's ready for him to fight, so he should tell his son who he is and reveal his plan for taking care of the suitors. And with that, she transforms him into a young, hot Odysseus with shiny new clothes, and with that, she flies off. Telemachus is understandably surprised when Odysseus walks back into the hut. Odysseus explains that it's Athena's doing, and then he says, Telemachus, I am your father. And now I want James Earl Jones to record an audiobook of the Odyssey. For every book, frankly. Total tangent here. Every good Michigander knows that James Earl Jones is one of us. Uh, my mom was flying home from somewhere once and overheard someone speaking on the airplane. And it was pretty obvious who it was because that voice is unmistakable. Mr. James Earl Jones himself was also flying home on that plane. 
But back to the Odyssey. (laughs) Now, Telemachus doesn't believe this at first. Only an immortal could transform from an old beggar to this godlike figure that Odysseus now cuts. Odysseus explains, no, he's totally immortal. It was Athena who changed him. So yeah, one of the gods is responsible for his transformation, but he's really Odysseus. And the two men weep and hug and would have kept up crying until sundown if Telemachus hadn't thought to ask how Odysseus had come to Ithaca in the first place. I mean, it's not like he exactly could have, you know, walked home. It's, an, you know, there's a sea and everything. Um, Odysseus tells him about the Phaeacians and then asks for details about what's happening in the palace. How many suitors are there? You can't figure out a battle plan if you don't know about the opposing army. Telemachus enumerates them, um, like literally, he says, there are so many from here and so many from there. It's at least 120, <laughs> um, if you add up just the numbers. Uh, it's hard to say exactly how many there are beyond that 120, because he says things like, um, there are 12 from Ithaca, plus all of their retainers. So uh, when I count up to that 120, that includes the 12, but I don't know how many to put in for all of their retainers, so it doesn't include that. Um because we don't know how many all of their other retainers is. Anyway, so at least 120 suitors. There are a lot of people at the palace. Uh, Telemachus says there is no way they can do anything about it. Um, They are simply outnumbered. And Odysseus reassures him, all that they need is the right plan. In the morning, Telemachus will take Odysseus and his old beggar guys into the palace. And while the suitors are distracted by this stranger, Telemachus will gather up their weapons and lock them away. Then they'll be able to catch the suitors off guard. Plus, they have Athena and Zeus on their side. But in order for the plan to succeed, no one must know that he is Odysseus. Not Laertes, not Eumaeus, and not even Penelope. But it's not just the suitors that they'll have to deal with. There are servants who have been disloyal, and they will need to be dealt with too. Telemachus says that he knows who, you know, which servants have stayed faithful and which have taken up with the suitors. And so father and son sit down and plot. Meanwhile, back at the palace, Eumaeus has arrived, but not just Eumaeus. The sailors from Telemachus's ship have sent a messenger to Penelope that Telemachus has arrived, so things don't go exactly as planned. Eumaeus was just going to pull Penelope aside and whisper the news, but the sailor shouts it, so the suitors know that their plot to kill Telemachus on his way home from Pylos has failed. Antinous is furious. He describes his ideal plot to kill Telemachus and force Penelope to marry one of them. His suggestion is met with silence. um, Amphinomus finally speaks up and suggests that maybe outright killing Telemachus isn't the best idea. They should ask the gods for advice first. And if the gods say they should kill him, then they can go ahead with Antinous's plan. And everyone, well, you know, except for Antinous, votes to do what Amphinomus suggests. It is at this point that Penelope makes one of her rare appearances. She is described as Penelope the Wise, and she is no fool. She knows that the suitors are plotting her son's death, and she confronts them about it. She speaks to Antinous in particular. 
Has he forgotten how his family came to Ithaca? How they were besieged by pirates? And how Odysseus could have sacked his city, but instead chose to offer them asylum and protection? And this is how Antinous repays Odysseus? Antinous doesn't respond, which is probably a good move. Instead, it is Eurymachus who speaks up. He assures her that Telemachus will not be killed. He'll see to it personally. He swears to the gods. All of which is totally untrue. But there is little Penelope can say in response, so she returns to her bedroom and Athena casts sleep over her. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, or Eumaeus's hut, Athena transforms Odysseus back into his beggar disguise just in time for Eumaeus to return home. Eumaeus breaks the news that someone else told Penelope about Telemachus's return and the suitors heard the announcement. But Telemachus isn't worried. He knows that the stranger by his side is his dear old dad. They roast a pig, have dinner, and go to sleep. And that is the end of book 16. This book is very transitional, uh, which makes sense since this is the point um, that the story of Telemachus and the story of Odysseus finally become a single story. We are moving from the story of Telemachus coming of age and the story of Odysseus's travels to the story of how they will work together to oust the suitors from their home. Um, one of the things that I find to be weird about this book is Odysseus's transformation. I just don't get Athena's thinking in making him young. It's not like that's a feature that his 20-year-old son is expecting to see when his father returns. I mean, you haven't seen your dad in 20 years, right? You probably expect him to, I don't know, have aged a decade or two. Uh, but she makes him young for his revelation to Telemachus. So you really can't blame Telemachus for thinking that this man is not his father and is clearly a god in disguise instead. But despite that weird choice on Athena's part, their reunion is really pretty sweet and everyone can learn a little from their emotional display. Um, Eumaeus could almost walk in right at that point and just start singing, it's all right to cry, crying gets the sad out of you, right? Um, that, you know, it, it, it's okay for men to be emotional. And, and I, I, I like that part. It's very sweet. Um, as far as literary themes are concerned, this book is really heavy on, you know, disguise and dissembling. We see Telemachus trying to keep the news of his return from the suitors. Um, we see Odysseus's disguise changing, which obviously I've already talked about. We see Athena appearing in disguise, but only to Odysseus, um, which may make you think that she could just appear as herself. But we do know from other myths that if a god were to reveal themselves in their full glory, it would kill a mere mortal such as Odysseus. So Athena really does have to disguise herself somehow um, so that she doesn't kill her favorite hero. Um, so I get that. But still, it's still part of what we see here. Um, and I also have to wonder just how many hours there are in the day there on Ithaca. Um, they roast a lot of pigs. Now, I am not a big meat eater, um, but my understanding is that roasting a pig is not a very fast process. 
Um, I don't know if it's, you know, like a suckling pig, if that makes, I don't know how much shorter that, but it still seems like it takes a while. Um, but they, regularly they'll talk for a bit and then they'll roast a pig and then they'll have dinner or, you know, lunch or whatever meal is up next, second breakfast. Um, so no wonder Odysseus winds up spending three days at Eumaeus's hut. We'll ignore the fact that three is, of course, a symbolic number, <laughs> but I did it, they spend a lot of time roasting pigs. I, it seems like the way it's written, it always comes after the conversation, and you have to wonder if it, why why they didn't put the pig on to roast and then have the conversation so that when they were done talking, the food would be ready. I I don't know. Like I said, I don't I don't eat enough meat to really have an idea about roasting pigs. So, what are your thoughts now um, about roasting pigs or anything else? How do you feel about Odysseus? Or Telemachus or Penelope. Um, we saw a little bit of her in this book. Come share your thoughts on this or anything that book 16 made you think of. The blog is at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. Next Monday, we have another comedy, Plautus's Amphitruo or Amphitryon, depending on your translation. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.